crucifixion. In your earlier paintings, you seem to concentrate mostly on the head and the mouth. Can you remember painting that in 1949? 1949? That's about 10 years before I was born, so I assume you're playing with notions of time in this instance. So if you're referring to that original painting um, with Mickey Mouse, then certainly the head features very fully in the centre of the composition, but that's, we see Mickey Mouse revolving in space, um, actu actually gyrating within the plane of the canvas, but, but uh, as you can't actually see the mouth um, when you look at the back of the head, I can only assume, you know, meaning um, the way I was trying to express, perhaps, or, or say something, it's not, I mean the date and, and the mouth reference is not really that clear. And whatever way I look at it, I mean, that particular canvas, it, it, it just simply didn't work. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it didn't succeed? Why didn't it succeed? Well, <laughs> uh, there was no satisfaction. It was a contrivance, I think. Um, uh, attempting to be a painter when, in fact, my practice over 25 years um, I've only ever made two paintings. Um, this was a very decided attempt to force something, to force a practice, to play with a technique. It's not normally the way I work at all, um, preferring that the concept, the actual ideas that are involved in a project um, dictate the form much more. But this was an instance where I put the form in before the notion. and. Um, in that instance, I feel it didn't. It, it simply didn't work. I mean, it's, there's, there's a certain pleasure in it, a certain naive quality to it. But um, no, it, it, it didn't work. And as such, it's an exploration of a reality, kind of pushing boundaries. And I was trying to push boundaries, um, but when I come back to it. Um, what I'm coming back to is an absolute authenticity. That's what becomes important. Deforming and reforming reality in your paintings, would this be an example of it with regard to the body? Reforming and deforming reality? <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it's not an ex it, it, I mean, everything, everything an artist does, there's a certain amount of artifice about it. There's a attempt at presentation, at representation, but to suggest that this is an example of deforming reality and um, then reforming, then no, it's certainly an attempt by an artist to 
interpret a particular reality or to play with some idea. Bear in mind that the fine art practice, it's, it's a language apart. It's not my attempt here to describe it. It's as famously quoted by someone as the notion of trying to dance a poem. It's not something that's really desirable or a good thing to do. Certainly in terms of the South Bank show, what, whatever it is you're going to do with this interview, it's, there's an entertainment value to it. But um, uh, within the work itself, I mean, I mean, let's let let let's take it from the side that as an artist, I've taken my experience of which much of my reality has been very very deformed. I, I, you know, the years before rehab and things were the lost years in many respects, and it's not a past that the doors closed on. It's not something I do anymore. Um, and that destruction of reality, the, the phrases we use at the time to get out of it, to get smashed, to get, you know, wrecked or whatever, then we come back from that experience with something, and to an extent that is going to inform my practice. Um, but, you know, to, to specify that particular painting as such, in that case it's, it's almost a deceit, it's, it's like a connivance, or a convenience. <laughs> But do you see any boredom in that at all, in the conveyance? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. You, you've really got to speak up. The projector's really loud. It's actually quite deafening. Um, it sounded like you said conveyance. I mean, in, 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 what are we talking about? My car that I was driving at the time? Jesus. I mean, when I was at art school, I used to drive um, a succession of old minis. They were the mini estates, the various ones. I could pick them up for about 100, £150. Um, great fabulous disposable cars, I mean they're old wrecks, and um, I transport huge amounts of things in them, driving along the Fulham Road where part of the floor dropped off one day as I drove through a puddle and soaked me with water, actually came as a jet through the steering wheel, and I swear I almost came off the road laughing at that point, but I, I, I guess we're getting off, off the subject, it's not really what you're talking about, isn't it? But, but you know, that, that kind of approach to motoring as opposed to an approach as an artist, um, it, it, it really, it resulted in, in a complete disaster. Why do you think it's a disaster? Why is it a disaster? Well, for a start, I, I got a criminal conviction for driving such an old wreck. Um, I was stopped by the police on a number of occasions, um, especially when pieces of the car actually dropped off um, into the road. and fell behind, but um, it, it, it was successful for me at the time, you know, I was working within the small, the limited budget of a student, and having, as they were, dangerous vehicles, that was, that was it, and it was, it was a complete disaster, but at the same time it served its purpose at the time. Sorry, am I, am I missing, you're talking about my work, aren't you, of course, as the artist, <laughs> I know I get so distracted, so distracted, but still, it's, um, no, the painting itself, it was just naive, it was an, a very early painting, an attempt, I mean, one of only two paintings that I've actually done as such, so it was, um, it's, it's exaggerated, it's pushing it too far to say it's a complete disaster, it's, it's rather charming in its naivety, I would have thought, um, you know, it wasn't, there's no representation, no story, there's no real depth to it. 
Um, but in this instance, let's say not disaster, let's say it actually worked. What do you think about the idea of doing away with story, with story and representation altogether, a la Jackson Pollock? Pollock? <laughs> Getting rid of representation like Pollock. I mean, well, that's, that perhaps, that's even misunderstanding Pollock himself, because I, I'd go, I'd say quite clearly that what Pollock did was represent something. He, he was representing, as he saw it, his internal truth, um, his internal mysteries, the... I mean, the, the, the height of modernism that you saw with the abstract expressionists, especially Pollock, bearing in mind how um, there was huge political backing, there was huge financial and political backing to make abstract expressionism the domineering, the dominant force of the 20th century. Um, the politics behind it, hugely interesting. And this idea of the artist as the genius. If you look at the Ed Harris film, where he actually films as the moment of Pollock, where he first spills the paint, and it reminds me... Check, check the scene out. It reminds me very strongly of um, that scene in Odyssey Cloud 2000, What a Space Odyssey, where they first use bones as tools, and there's this great evolutionary step forward, and Jackson Pollock spilling the paint on the floor and realising that this was something is kind of portrayed in that way. So this notion of the artist as the hero, of uh, the torture genius of which, you know, Pollock is is absolutely great, but it's it's completely misunderstanding Melvin to say that abstract paintings like that uh, they've removed um, representation. I mean, it, it it's within the narrative frame. There's the story is uh, the story of the art, the story of the artist, the story of the concept of the art world, of the business and the fabric and the framework that we all begin to agree on. We either choose to agree, we make it work. It's only through our tacit agreement that the art world actually functions or t um, in, in, in any way at all. Um, and Pollock, to me, was, I mean, you know, what a hero, what, what a guy, but whether I see him as the hero that you read about in the art books, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure about that. Do you find inequalities as in Rothko, then? Rothko, yeah, well, Rothko, Rothko much more. I mean, yeah, yeah I would see Rothko as an authoritative figure, but only in the sense of, I mean, the guy was a suicide. And there's something incredibly heroic about that as, 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 as well. There's something I personally relate to very much. A death wish can be very strong. And these, these vast, empty, tragic, deep, deep, deep canvases, which are so obviously intended to be imbued with depth and meaning and angst and humanity. Whereas... Um, it's because we choose to do that. The model, the modernist model was put forth by Greenberg at the time, that there was some universal aesthetic, something that was purely human, taking it out of cultural terms into the, out of the cultural reference point of the New York art world, the European art world, and very much in opposition to the Soviet art world, which um, the abstract expressionists were so much funded and set up to be. Um, so, yeah, Rothko, Rothko's fucking wonderful. 
we love a Rothkoe, don't we? Yeah, we all love a Rothkoe. Everyone in the studio loves a Rothkoe. That was a painting that Van Gogh did, and he said about it, I've tried to express the idea that the cafe is a place where one can ruin oneself, run mad or commit a crime. He also said, although he was very, very fond of the painting, he said, it's one of the ugliest, ugliest paintings I've done. So the idea, well, well, in a cafe, Van Gogh, I mean, oh my God, Van Gogh is taking, taking the idea of the tortured artist even further. I mean, you really are, you're bringing out all the chestnuts, aren't you, for this one? But, um, um, which version of Van Gogh do we think of? Do we think of, um, what's his name, the guy from the NRA, Charlton Heston as Van Gogh. Was it Charlton Heston playing Van Gogh? Was that one of the other ones? One of those beautiful Hollywood films of the tortured artist, thinks of Van Gogh cutting his ear off as this tortured, deep, deep soul, whereas, you know, he's, he's kind of mentally disturbed somewhere very much on the spectrum. Um, alcohol, the mental illness, the grinding poverty, um, and going wrong in a cafe. I mean, these days, what, what can you say that? You go wrong by not shopping eth ethically, by shopping in Starbucks or something like that. So you go and buy uh, coffee in Starbucks, and certainly a man can find a room in that way, because just, just what a foul, foul thing to do. Um, and then to describe um, any of his works, saying it's one of the ugliest things he's ever done, that's a beautiful thing for an artist to say. Because ugly, I mean, he's talking about beauty. Where does the beauty lie? Is the, the, the ugliness of his meaning, the ugliness of the ideas transmitted. I mean, ugly is the new beauty, it's the new black this year. I certainly read that in Tapa recently anyway. Um, isn't that right? Ugly, ugly is, yeah, ugly is the new beautiful this year. That's, that's, that's right. When he says that's one of the ugliest paintings I've done, he was obviously aware at the time that people were saying his paintings were ugly. You ran into the same reaction early on in your career, didn't you? In my career? Um, no, I, I think the only person that's never actually the words ugly, although I think the best one was Julie Burchill in The, in the Guardian, when she used to have her column in the Saturday Guardian, uh, the Suicide Bomber Barbie piece, she compared... Um, she said that Gilbert and George and the Chapman brothers were only outdone for artistic stupidity by Simon Tishko, my suicide bomber Barbie. But um, so when people say your paintings are ugly, what do you think of that? They say my paintings are ugly. I mean, my God, I'm flattered, immensely flattered that anyone should be bothered to have an opinion on um, one of the two paintings I've actually done. But I mean, it, when they say the best rejoinder would be that. I can always make another painting, but let's face it, you were born that way. Boom, 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 boom. But no, I'm being, I'm being facetious, as is my want at times. Um, this notion of ugly, what does that mean? Is that actually a compliment? Is it a criticism? Is it something we should even be worried about? It's thank you for having an opinion. That's, that's a good thing. I mean, it's better for something than nothing. Do you know, Sid Vicious wrote that on his chest with broken glass. That, better feel pain than feel nothing at all. Uh, wrote the word love or hate, sex or whatever. Just that's where it came from. So someone saying my paintings are ugly, great. You know, besides, I'm not a painter. I, I, you do keep going back to this notion of painting. I'm not a painter, so it, it doesn't bother me at all. But that level of engagement in my work of, are we talking about aesthetics? Are we talking about ugly ideas? Are we talking about brutality? Are we talking about beauty? 
um, you know, for me, beauty is is it's it's a concept. It's an idea, a beautiful idea, a beautiful set of concepts, a beautiful notion. Um, to consider within an artwork the aesthetics. Do we have the aesthetics of an idea? The aesthetics of a notion. It's it's you know where's transcendence lie? Where is it actually at? I don't make Athena posters. I'm not making Laura Ashley wallpaper. Um, sometimes I make very very dark ideas into very beautiful ideas through the way I work with it. It's something I play with, this notion of um, transformation within the work, of transforming ideas by rotating ideas, by recycling or cycling through ideas. Um, when you have the yin turning into the yang and vice versa. So. Um, to take anything as a criticism is kind of febrile to an extent, yet the important critique is the personal critique and that's where the danger lies perhaps, because quite often my internal critic can be very, very damaging as with any creative person or, or any human being, I suppose, the internal damaging and damning voice. And with me, certainly, my stuff turns inwards. Um, that criticism internalizes, and I withdraw into darkness, depression, into to uselessness. Um, you know, and then only last year I spent about four months in bed. Just, um, it was the appropriate thing to do in many ways. Kind of an elegant thing to do, a kind of smoking jacket in my boudoir as opposed to, um, anyway, whatever. I'm just thinking of a kind of stylish root of that artistic misery. Um, you know, but perhaps it is that the critique turns into self harm in some ways, self destructive. Is this a form of a tribute to Van Gogh? That is a, a tribute to Van Gogh. Well, <laughs> you know, why, why? No, not at all. I mean, for a start, I think the thread, the artistic thread of which Van Gogh was a part, is perhaps, just perhaps, very separate from the one that I'm travelling along. Although, you know, I would draw a very clear line from modernism through to the kind of eclectic practice that I, I involve myself with. But, um, you know, to say, is this a tribute to Van Gogh? It's like I've got, you know, there's a bunch of flowers on the table there. Is this, this part of that tribute? And in reality, it's just a bunch of flowers, really. But as a very postmodern boy, I'm always going to be referring, aren't I? Can you remember what you felt when you made this painting? God, you're asking me what I was... Can I remember what I was feeling when I made that? Um, once again, you say painting, is that word again? Paint, paint, I'm not a decorator. Um, what was I feeling? Who was I feeling? Be more like. I mean, that was, you, you're referring to a period when sexual appetites were rapacious, so it was just non ending. So, a succession of art students um, and other people, but. Internal feeling? Did I have any at that point? 
um, it's a roller coaster, isn't it? To, to try and pin down one particular part of the creative process in this way. So your your questioning Mervyn at this point is almost getting to like, what's your favourite colour? I think you can do better than that, don't you? That figure in the foreground that slightly worries you now. Did you put that in last? Figure. Sorry. Let me let me see. Figure in the foreground. Um. Do you know I I don't think I even put that figure in the foreground. I think that was one of the interns, and it's not even something I would have asked to do. Um, you know, you, you, I've got a very wide-ranging practice working with an extremely wide range of materials, and you know, completely agnostic. And yet, time and time again, you're coming back to these two paintings. One of which I did in foundation year at school, at art school, when I kind of had to. Egyptian statues are some of the things you like best of all, aren't they? I think Egyptian art. Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm. I have a particular fascination with Egyptian art at the moment, and that dates back to, apart from the very strong aesthetic and the very strong modal modality within Egyptian design and art that, that still penetrates 4,000 years later into our culture. Um, I had a recent interview with Stephen Farthing, who's a professor of fine art at Chelsea School, and he was showing me some drawings he made of drawings from stones he took. Um, these were sketches made on stone by ancient Egyptian draftsmen um, who would have been working craftsmen as opposed to the artisan, uh, artistic thread. And what we saw of these drawings were multifaceted. They were trying to capture movement and activity by drawing things from different perspectives, different angles, all on the flat pane of the canvas, or in this case on the stone, which is kind of mind-blowing in a way, because we think of Cezanne and Bras leading to Picasso and blah, 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 blah cubism, as being this revolutionary way of, of seeing and interpreting the world, leading to abstraction and things, yet here we see it 4,000 plus years ago on a piece of stone by a jobbing craftsman making sketches, which is beautiful, it's beautiful. Um, there's that continuum, the continuity of um, artistic endeavour, you go all the way back to the Lascaux cave, surely. Why are you so attracted to painting the figure? Figures? Um, God, figures, do I? Do I? Am I drawn to the figure? I mean, it, yeah, to, to a very large extent, I mean, everything, the figurative elements in my work, um, the bodies in my work, there's, there's a lot of news, a lot of um, flesh, but then that's, that's just carnality, isn't it? You know, this, this artistic notion of the artist in the studio wearing a smock with some nude model sitting on a stool, that's just, just always been a cheap trick for me to get laid. I mean, that's one of the only reasons I ever became an artist was to get laid. Pretty much like you've expressed yourself with your TV career. Um, and for me, it's been quite successful. You know, just uh, to come up and be in one of my etchings. It's, it's absolutely great. It, it, it never fails. Well, sometimes it does, but it's a numbers game, eh? It's an empty, empty, empty approach, I admit, but why not? But you're very fond of Aeschylus, aren't you? Really? Because of the Furies and the... 
furies? What, what on earth are furies? What are you talking about? Are they, um, furries, the people that dress up in animal skins for uh, weird fetish parties. Um, if you don't mind, let's just take a break for a while. Maybe have some tea and you can sober up a little. That'd be great. Thanks. Gambling's always been an important part of his life, just as chance and accident play a major role in his painting. I believe you generally play roulette. No, actually, it's uh, Chemin de Fer. Why is that? It's because I was introduced to it by uh, the artist Lillian Lynn, and um, the way we play it is actually using words instead of numbers. Therefore, it becomes an intellectual pursuit rather than uh, a game of numeric chance. Um, far more stimulating, although... And as for roulette, well, you know, not exactly James Bond, and the only times I've played roulette has been on a tr on trips to the south of France with the writer Edwison Orban, and he took me to show me where he wrote his book, Clue to the Exit, which was written about a man who discovers he has cancer and decides to lose all of his money in um, the casinos of Monte Carlo, and of course fickle fate means he just kept winning and winning no matter how hard he tried he couldn't lose his money he just kept gaining money and beautiful story beautifully written as Teddy's books tend to be but Monte Carlo it's the beating heart of the capital beast it's the most obscurantist and luxury evil and it's deep pile carpet. Um, 
ghost-like figures wandering around, clacking their chips as they place bets on several tables at once, going from table to table as the wheel is spun, meaning that they are never without a gamble in play. Do you feel that, uh, that you put other parts of your life at risk, as you do when you're gambling? Much as the artist may be, so I'd like to think. I mean, it's all a gamble. The whole thing is, I've got no backup plan, there's no plan B, there's no pension involved in this. It's like a drug, perhaps. No, gambling, taking everything one has, working with it. It's like with Flight Project, what have I got, what have I got to play with? I've got a flat in Fulham I was lucky enough to buy. Um, so what do I do? Turn it into an artwork, throw it onto the table, stick it onto red 16, spin the wheel, see what happens. Ball still spinning. All is still to play for. Yes. That, uh, that's putting yourself at risk all the time, isn't it? What you like to do, uh, uh, I believe, is to somehow let your unconscious take over. Is that right?
Simon J. Uh, give me a call. Bye. Hi, Simon. Um, this is John returning your call from this afternoon. Uh, it's now 4.24. Cheers now.
You have been listening to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Simon Tishko. Uh, Sonic Detours, trips around the sound between your ears and upwards and round. Special guest today was Mervyn, Melvin, Mervyn Bragg and little excerpts from the London Weekend Television Archive. Who knows what that means, but there you go. Further information about this episode of Isotopica and previous episodes of Isotopica can be found on my website, which is www.theculture.net, which has a sparkling new front page, which if anyone is interested, give me some feedback on that. I'd be most interested uh, interested in JavaScript programming. I'm actually looking for someone to collaborate on a project with. Anyone out there that's good with syntax and processing and maybe planks coding interesting stuff if you can raise yourself from your laptops to work on a collaborative project contact me through the website or directly through resonance fm this is me simon tushko signing off for another seven days hopefully see you same time same place same wonderful international art radio station resonance 104.4 on your london dial